light the first Advent candle in our wreath. We don't always uh, have a, an Advent wreath, but uh, most years we do as we celebrate these, uh, these particular topics. And while we don't necessarily do it in a traditional way, there are some traditional liturgical points that get made uh, very often during the Advent season. Candle representing each week of this sermon series as, uh, as we go through the gospel and the advent. This idea that love has come. And as we start today, our initial focus logically, rightly, is on the problem. And the reason that he and so often as we celebrate Christ or we celebrate Christmas. Even when we talk about Christ, even when we have Jesus at the center of our season, very often we forget to talk about the actual gospel. What makes this good news? Why is it so exciting that this baby was born? Yes, there are miracles. Yes, there are angels. But why does this matter? This particular Christmas season, as we walk through this idea of the gospel in the Advent. That's exactly what we want to explore. Who cares? I love Christmas. I love the, the nostalgia. I love the, the lights, the gifts. I love the food. I love the songs. I've been listening to uh, Christmas music in my car, thanks to my daughter, for the last month or so. Uh, it, it's a constant excitement for me. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. We'll be reading from the New International Version. And as we read this text, we see the, the, the story of Christmas introduced. In Matthew's Gospel, he begins with the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And he, he ties this lineage to Abraham, father of of the Israelites, to David, the king over Israel, to whom God had promised his offspring would always sit on the throne and reign over, over Israel. In these two covenants, God had promised to bless all nations, to bring peace, to set things right. Matthew, starting in verse 18, says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Father in heaven, we open your word together today. Remind us that this is your word. that are said, and more importantly, the things that 
save us in some general sense. He didn't come to save us from the difficulties of life or low self-esteem or poverty. He came to save us specifically from sin. We lit this black candle today to remind us of that. All of the beauty of Christmas starts with the ugliness of sin and death. Our core reality for today is this. Jesus came to rescue us from sin and death. Jesus came to rescue us from sin and death. So as we celebrate this baby born in a manger and we sing all these wonderful Christmas songs, pay attention to the lyrics. Now, I don't mean pay attention to jingle bells and have yourself a merry little Christmas. Those are fine, wonderful songs. And, you know, the the Christmas song that we often call chestnuts roasting over an open fire, roasting an open fire. Wonderful song about Christmas written by a Jewish man, as so many great Christmas songs are. Not really helpful for me. Wonderful nostalgic celebrations. Love them. They're on my playlist. We look at Jonathan's birth. The great parents. Even some we don't necessarily think about. Listen to the words time of the holly and the ivy. Sounds like a fun little ditty when Bing Crosby sings. Speaking of the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. The reason he came is to save us. Sin separates us from God. Let's start out at the, at the beginning. As we go through this, we're going to do a little little study of sin to go through it. What, what is it? What does it mean? What's it for? We're going to look at Adam's sin, our sin, my sin, your sin, their sin. And we're even going to look at Christ's sin. Now, before you start stoning me for blasphemy, ride with me. We'll talk about it at the end. We're going to look at all of these different possessions of sin and see some different aspects of what this means. First, let's look at Adam's sin. Adam's sin brought death. Adam's sin brought death. Now, that at first seems like a pretty obvious statement, much like Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, much like Jesus came to rescue us from sin and death. Yeah, kind of obvious. We talk about that at church a lot. Maybe it is, but we still have to get it down deep inside of us so that we can have this transformation take place. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis. If we're going to begin at the beginning, then let's go to the book of beginnings. Genesis being the very first book of the Bible. When you get there, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1 lays out the the pattern of creation as God creates everything. He speaks the worlds into existence. And He creates all of these wonderful aspects of creation in the physical realm and declares each one of them good. Then He declares humanity, the pinnacle of this, when He finalizes His creation, He declares this completed 
miscarriages. In chapter 2, we get some details about that. We see that the, the man is alone, and God, amidst all these good and very good things, we see that God says it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And he creates the woman from the man so that in her he could find a completeness he could not find on his own. But even before he does that, back up to verse 16. Now let's, let's start with 15 since it seems to be the beginning of a paragraph in the Starting with verse 15 of chapter 2. Moses writes, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work existed before sin. Work was God's design, a holy and sacred thing. Verse 16, And commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Fast forward to chapter 3. You may recognize this as the chapter when sin enters the system. <coughs> so, Adam has one thing in all of existence, one thing that can displease God. Every other choice he can make is good. One choice, not Verse 3, starting with, in chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's not what we just read, is it? free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The serpent says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the ser serpent, in verse 2, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, our Wednesday night Bible study, this is what we would call going above the line. Eve thinks she's coming back to what God actually said, but what she's really doing is adding to what God said. Now, perhaps this is something that Adam had told her, Eve, don't even touch that tree. Don't even get close. Stay away from this. Trying to keep her away from getting into trouble. But what God actually said, what the Word of God declared is don't along with it. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the serpent is crafty. How many of you know the devil's crafty? Every good lie has some truth in it, doesn't it? Just ask 
So the devil says, you won't die. Now that's half true. They didn't immediately drop over, collapse, body, die. They did die. God will clarify that for them in just a moment. But as we see this enter, as sin enters the system here, something dramatic happens. Satan's drawing their attention away from it. What God really knows. He's holding back from it. You will not surely die. Instead, God knows God's fault. God's trying to get you. God's holding back from you. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. Everything here that he says is at least partially true. Bad conclusion. The bottom line is we do this all the time. We try to, to use our own reasoning, our own understanding to sort things out. This makes sense. That doesn't make sense. But the bottom line of all of it is if God said it, then it is so, period. It does not matter if it makes sense to you, to me, or to the devil. God said it. Therefore, we are bound by it. You won't die. Come on, man. It's okay. That's when you just don't die. Apparently, my face is moving apart. So, as the devil is, is presenting this situation... His claim is that they will have their eyes open. And you know what? He was right. Now, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil allows them, in a sense, to be like God, to know what they could not know before. Why? Before they were innocent. How many of you know once innocence is lost, you can't get it back? You can't unknow what you when you've been exposed to sinful thinking, that th sinful thinking stays with you. I saw images when I was a very young boy that I should not have seen. And in my mind, those same images stayed with me. Literally for decades. You can't unsee what you saw. You can't unknow what you know. You can't unsin chosen to go your way instead of God. That was the trick the devil brought. Yeah, God's word doesn't really make sense. You're not reading it right. It's a living document. It has to change for changing time. That was great when you were first created, but hey man, it's not like a week now, right? So who knows how long it's been. It could have been eons. Because death hadn't entered yet. brought out the lie that our thinking is stronger than God's thinking. That God is not giving us the best things. There's something else out there that's better. A shortcut. You know what's the funny thing? They were already like that. 
They were created in God's image and likeness. The only thing lacking was the one thing that they were not designed to handle, the knowledge of good and evil. They weren't equipped for that. They were designed perfectly, to be perfectly innocent, in perfect intimacy with God, to bring Him glory, for them to enjoy Him fully, with nothing in the way, enjoying one another, enjoying creation, perfect joy, not a single fear, no negative emotions, no shame, no guilt. The devil offers them the one thing they don't have and convinces them that they want saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for human wisdom, she took some and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, verse 6 seems to bring up some questions for me, and maybe it does for you too. If Adam's with her, why is he silent? Why in the world is her husband standing there not saying, no, Eve, stop! Instead, he goes along. He watches as his wife is deceived. He's like, eh, happy wife. You know, he's probably thinking like so many, ah, happy wife, happy life, right? I just want to go along, get along. If she says that she's the boss, we're just going to let her do her thing. Well, I want to make honey happy, so let me have some of that apple, too. sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They didn't have to before. They were as innocent as babies. Babies don't worry about covering up. Your parents know this. You your children in it. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Good plan. The one who made it all spoke it all into existence. We're going to hide behind some trees and fig leaves and see if that takes care of it. The Lord God called to the man in the first rhetorical question regarding in Scripture, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of the, that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Sure, blame the wife. By the way, guys have been doing that ever since. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. Right out of the gate, as soon as sin enters, we start passing the buck. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. It was the first proclaiming of the gospel. The first proclaiming of the gospel in this prophecy of Messiah he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. The painful labor will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Notice, not because of Eve, because of Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. It's from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This proclamation of the curse is God stating the facts of being separated from Him by sin. It's also an expression of His mercy. He could have ended them right now, right? I mean, that's, that's what happened. Death in Scripture is a separation. It's not a cessation. It's not stopping. It's not a ceasing to exist. A separation. The spirit separated from the body. Ultimately, our spirit separated from God. Adam and Eve are in this situation because they are separated from God by their sin. And God, rather than striking them immediately, spells out what has happened. They died spiritually on the spot. Now has entered physically into all creation, and long before uh, long before science understood entropy, God declares it here that the earth, the ground, is actually cursed because of sin. Paul records for us in Romans that all of creation is under a curse because of our sin. Innocent trees our sin. Fish, oceans, space, all cursed because of our sin. Adam's sin brought death. It brought death to the system. Now you might be thinking, wasn't it just an apple? What's the big deal? First of all, let's settle the apple thing. There's no mention of an apple. What kind of fruit is not the point? Was it an apple? Who knows? Who cares? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was the one tree they were not to eat of. It was the one tree that would bring death. Right? So we think of apples maybe because of Snow White. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we like apples. But the reality of it is the apple's not the point. The fruit's not the point. 
If it were some wonderful super fruit that you make smoothies out of, doesn't matter. No death. All death. What's the big deal? The big deal is that it was not just fruit. It was choosing independence from God. Essentially seeking to depose God as king. serpent, but Adam was there. He was responsible for Eve. He didn't do anything. He jumped right on the sin. Ever since then, death has been natural for us. They chose their way over God's way, rejecting God's truth for the devil's lie. And as a consequence, they sacrificed life by separating themselves from the source of life. God is the giver of life. Everything exists because of Him. He created life. Only God creates life. They separated from the giver of life. So when they chose their way, did God's truth, they gave up life. Death entered. Eve first, Adam but his responsibility in this, it's interesting that nowhere in Scripture does it focus on Eve's sin. That's the problem for us. It was Adam's sin. He was created first. He was created to be the head in that relationship. He was created to be the head of the human race. That leads us to our next point. Our sin separates us from God. Adam's sin brought death. Our sin separates us from God. We are not separated from God just because Adam sinned. We are separated from God because in Adam, all of us sin. We receive that, we call that original sin, we receive that, that sin in our soul's genome, as one poet put it, from our father Adam. We are all descended from Adam. More than just that natural descent, we are all spiritually descendants of Adam as well. Interestingly, we were created in the image of God, all of us. Adam was created in God's image. His children were created in God's image. We are all created in God's image, and therefore human life is sacred. But notice in Genesis chapter 5, when we see Adam's we see Adam's lineage laid out here. Here's the beginning, starting with 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, He made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And He named them mankind when they were created. Now, as we go through here, we see Adam had lived, Adam bears sons, but as you walk through this, notice what it's what is said here in verse 3. Adam had lived 130 years. He had a son. 
was a sinner. In his own likeness, in his own image, he goes on through all these generations. And I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans that in Adam all died. Adam sinned, and through Adam we all sinned. second Adam, who comes to save us from our sin. Our sin separates us from God. What does it have to do with me that Adam and Eve sinned in, in Eden? And what does that have to do with people who may never hear the gospel? We're here in America. We're privileged. We get to hear Christian teaching and talking all the time. We're here in church where we get to hear the answers to the gospel. But the reality is God deals with humanity individually and corporately. And in Adam, the entire human race fell. The entire human race separated from God. Just as the earth, the cosmos, suffers the consequences of sin, so all of us suffer the consequences of sin. Adam introduced sin into the system, and we are all children of Adam, receiving his nature as well as his federal headship. He acted on our behalf. Much as children bear the consequences of their parents' choices, and if you're a parent, hopefully you recognize that. When you mess up, your children reap the whirlwind. When you make bad choices, your children pay for it, just as you pay for the choices your parents make. When you make good choices, the fruit of that is passed on to your children. When we make God choices, that gets passed on to our children. And they get to see Him as He is. But when we make us choices, ungodly choices, choosing our way over His way, choosing our lie over His truth, choosing what we think is life but is actually death, same way we have inherited these things from, from Adam. Just the way children also bear the consequences of, of their parents' choices, so we as a race died in Adam. Understand, it's not merely individual people who are separated from God by individual transgressions. It's the entire human race separated from God by the breach of covenant that affects us all. <coughs> all of us. That said, recognize that my sin is my own fault. My sin is my own fault. doesn't matter if you sit down with a Freudian counselor and they tell you it's your mama's fault because you got daddy issues. It's everybody else's fault. We hear that so much today. I can't help it. I was born this way. I can't help it. I was raised this way. I can't help it. I am stuck with this bad economic condition because I was born into a, a poverty-stricken family. I can't help it. It's my race. Unfortunately, I've just been victimized by this unfortunate series of events that has happened to generations of people. I can't do anything about it. 
sin entered, we passed the buck. But we need to recognize that my sin is my own fault. It's not just what we have inherited, but what we have chosen. Oh, if I were back in the garden, I wouldn't have eaten from that tree. Really? How have you been doing so far on making those choices for yourself? You have opportunities every day to choose God's way or you say this without irony, without hesitation, every single person hearing my voice, including the one speaking, has failed to make those choices properly. It's not just what we inherited from Adam. It's not just that we are sinners by nature. It's not just that we are sinners because the race fell. choose to kick God off of the throne so that we can run our own show. God says this. The devil says, yeah, not really. God's really kind of trying to hold back from you, so I don't know if you should really go along with that. The Bible, you know, it's not really meant to be taken literally. It's more guidelines. that what we think is more important than what God decides. My sin is my own fault. No excuses. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame my upbringing. It's not only that we're sinners by nature and inheritance, but that we have indeed also chosen our own way, just as Adam did. Every individual is dead in sin. and needs to be given new life. We all fall short. No excuses. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. As you're turning there, I just want to point out that when God spoke to the serpent and to Eve and to Adam, while Adam is held responsible for the whole package, he addresses Eve directly. excuse for her either. All of us as individuals have to face the consequences. That's, that's a reality. My sin is my own fault. Look at Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start with verse 16 just because I want to read it and I like it. We're actually going to pick up with verse 18, but 16 and 17 get me excited, so Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, righteous will live by faith. Now understand where he's going here. Verse 18. The wrath of God is from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's not just of those people who happen to do that. It's of people, all of us, the 
because we all need it. We have some. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Let me read that again. So that people are without excuse. Goes on to detail that. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, talking to each one of us here, you, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape? You will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness and fairness and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Jump ahead to chapter three. righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. My sin is my own fault, but notice also, even though we all fall short, we have no excuses that leaps into the reality that your sin is your own responsibility. My sin is my own fault. I can't blame anybody else. It's not, I was born this way. It's not, you know, my mama did me wrong. It's, it's not, uh, you know, I was just retaliating. No, my sin is my own fault. But understand also that your sin is your own responsibility. Every person must give an account Every person will stand before God. You have to answer God for your sin against God. The King, the Creator, the righteous Judge will have every person stand before Him. Then what will you do? Who will you blame at 
everyday living of our lives, we can recognize pretty easily, if you're over, say, 50 years old, you can recognize it ain't what it used to be. If you grew up in, how many of you grew up in the 50s? Come on, some of you are too, too old to get your hand up. Is that what it is? No. If you grew up in the 50s, is the world that my kids are growing up in a lot like the world you grew up in? Look at the Christmas lists that are out there. A lot different now, right? There were no video games going on in the 50s. You'd be really excited about that little red wagon. About those of you, I who grew up in the 60s? Is this a lot like how you grew up? Things, things change a little bit? There was plenty. There was even sin in the 50s. I, I read that book. How many of us grew up in the 70s? 80s? Well, we're getting this, the real young folks. How many of you grew up in the 90s? Ooh, 90s! lie. 
God says, you get what you choose. You want life without me? Okay. You want to go your way instead of my way? Okay. You get everything that goes with it. You get all the fullness of joy that an immoral lifestyle can bring. sin hurts our children. Strangers who we have never met impacted as God gives us over shameful lusts. He goes on to detail. Even their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandon natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Uh, by the way, this verse is pretty clear and specific, so you can throw away the argument some liberal theologians will throw out there that it's really a mistranslation. The Bible doesn't really condemn homosexuality because, you know, it's just that's the wrong word. Try spinning the translation. It's not about a word. It's very clear. It's also not about homosexuality. It's about my way versus God's way. It doesn't matter what that individual sin looks like. When I choose my way over God's way, when our society chooses our way over God's way, He hands us over. We get the consequences. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Sin is its own punishment. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they would, so that they do what ought not to be done. I'm going to try reading that again and see if I can do a better job. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. Our thinking is depraved. We don't reckon rightly. And if we don't reckon rightly, then our reasoning is going to take us down a path of death and destruction. God hands us over. Verse 29, they become filled with every kind of wickedness. Tell me if you haven't seen this in the news. Let me know if I'm wrong about this, but I think this sounds an awful lot like the consequences of sin that we live with in our society every day. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. several times the last two weeks. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. Notice this now. They not 
time we continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's in that approval that we see the real condemnation of the passage. When we tolerate, when we're okay with sin, when we approve of those who practice sin, and I would add, especially in the church, I'm going beyond this passage, but it's pretty clear from the rest of the New Testament that God holds those who belong to Him at a higher level of accountability. But we let that happen, and we're just okay with it, and we maintain silence. Just live and let live. We have a libertarian approach to sin in our world. When that happens, we all suffer. I don't be misled. I'm not suggesting, nor does the Scripture, that we should have a Christianized society where the church and the state are blended together and we don't know the difference. That happened once. It wound up leading to a really dark time. So much so we called them the Dark Ages. And it led eventually to the Reformation where we had to pull back the truth of the Scripture that had been stolen from us. And now, we can't pull back the truth. This isn't about a moral majority. But it is recognizing that when the majority of the people abandon the reality of God, then the realities of our daily life cannot help but be affected. Society's sin, their sin, affects everyone. Last point, way over time, but I gotta get to this one. Christ's sin was borrowed from us. Put the stone down. Christ's sin was borrowed from us. This is our reality. The good news of the Advent, the gospel in the Advent is that Jesus became sin in our place. You might, hopefully, some of you memorized that as our memory verse recently. That's the truth. That God made him who knew no sin, Jesus had no sin of his own, to become sin for us. Jesus became sin in my place. He took my sin, he borrowed it from us. He had none of his own. He took my sin on his shoulders, and he died on that cross where I belong. He paid the penalty for me. Jesus came to rescue us from sin and death. That's what the angel told Joseph. They call his name Jesus. rescue us from sin and death. As Adam, so the rest of us chose our way over God's way, traded God's truth for a lie, and have therefore been severed from the giver of life. Jesus came to reverse that in us. Last verse I'm going to have you look up is John 14, 6. Some of you know it by heart. I want you to see it. Turn to John. If you're in Romans, go back to the left. Verse 
6 is our focus. I'm going to read from verse 1 while you're still looking. Jesus says to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm coming, that I am going? Try this again. Would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? My memory verse from last time. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. You know the place, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas, not the big speaker that Peter is, but speaks up for the group and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Christmas is so wonderful and so worth celebrating is specifically the gospel and the advent. Jesus came to rescue us from sin and death. Our problem is sin. It separates us from God and we have no way to fix it. As we celebrate His coming, we're not just celebrating the nostalgic idea of a baby in a manger or the gathering of family and giving of gifts celebrating the reality that God loves us so much that He sent Christ to take our sin and to die as our substitute so that we could become His and have life by trusting Him and receiving His gift. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the price that was paid on our behalf. And we'll continue to explore the gospel of the Advent in the next few weeks. For now, though, let's pray. And as we pray... Specifically, let's pray, confessing together our sin and turning from our sin to God. Father God, there's really no way that we can spend We can't downplay our sin. We can't blame anybody else. We can't even blame Adam and Eve because we keep making these same
allows the, the lie of the devil to make our hearts restless, to want something more than we have, to want something more than what we actually have been given as great as we could ever Father, at each one of us, One of us, Father, has sinned against you. We confess that even now, as we are gathered here together, we carry sinful attitudes with us. Father, I ask that right now, in these moments, that you would make us mindful of these things, that you would shine a spotlight in our hearts. Father, make us aware of the areas that we've kept back from you. When we said we've given you our all, but we really have only given you that which we spared. In other parts, we've kept back. Congregation, join me now in a moment of silent contemplation. And ask God to show you your sins that you're not even aware of. Father, we confess these things to you. We ask you also, Lord, sins that we see that we commit with open eyes. May they not rule over us. 